This event was recorded live at the 2011 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Sometimes, and only too rarely, a writer is born who seems to have been invented by the culture itself. Moulded out of necessity, as if the times demanded her. Ireland, says Stephen Dedalus in Joyce's Ulysses, is a nightmare from which I'm trying to awake. <laughs> but let's admit that part of that awakening has been due to Edna O'Brien. Before her, the voice was quieter, the female voice was hardly permitted, and she came with a style full of grace and beauty, honesty and memory. From the beginning, Edna spoke truth to power, and is still doing it. The church and state in Ireland had never heard the like of it, and her first novel, The Country Girls, as you all know, was banned and burnt in many of the streets. But there was a greater and more lasting result. She opened up new possibilities for the imagination and for the literature, not only of Ireland, her own country, but of all nations. From book to book, she has deepened her concerns and added luster to the idea of great writing as a transformative act. Several generations have been altered, I would say enlarged, entertained, upbraided, won over, and she is as daring as ever today, writing and publish publishing some of the best material of her life. Her new book of stories, Saints and Sinners, is a masterclass in the art. So from the country girls in 1960 to the light of evening in 2006, she's written 18 novels. From A Scandalous Woman in 1974 to this year's Saints and Sinners, she's published six volumes of short stories. She's also written passionate books about James Joyce and Lord Byron. She's also written plays, the most recent Haunted, a wonderful piece that I saw both in London and in New York, where Philip Roth, who was there that night, summed up the way a lot of writers and readers feel about Edna O'Brien. He leaned into me after the first scene of the play and said, she's a great part of the world, Edna, isn't she? <laughs> and so she is a proud, fearless, necessary angel of modern literature. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together and welcome Edna O'Brien. I want to begin in the obvious. <laughs> we'll just go now, will we? Um, I want to begin in the obvious place, Edna. In childhood, you once said that an unhappy house or unhappy houses in general are good incubators of stories. Tell us about that. Uh, I, I, I did say it. Virginia Woolf also said it, probably more lucidly than I. She was talking about Jane, and I will tell you my own travails then. She was talking about Jane Austen, and the difference between the writing of Jane Austen and uh, Charlotte Bronte. And she said, if Jane Austen had heard quarrels on her family stairs, etc., etc., the whole tenor of her fiction would be different. Where unhappiness uh, yields fruit is that in times of anxiety, or quarrels, or fear, or slaughter, all our senses and our sensibilities and our antennae are more awake. Uh, for instance, if you're very happy, which is something I can't say I am constantly, if, if at all, and you're walking along, you're not aware of what the clouds look like or what the landscape is. But if you're unnerved, then you, you are. So that first house in County Clare, that obviously made the deepest possible impression. What was it like? It, it, you know, I dream of that house. I'm 80 years of age, and it is as if I am eight. I dream of that house again and again and again. And either I am trying to get into it. It was a, it was a sandstone house, tiny little bit posh because there had been money. My father's uncles were priests in Lowell, outside the parish of Boston, 
Well, they were good secular men, it would seem, because they patented a medicine called Father John's Medicine, cure for everything. <laughs> I, ha I have the literature about it. It's on Google. We got it off. Cure for everything. Frankly, I think it was maybe cod liver oil <laughs> with a little something. But there was a picture of this fairly brawny priest, you know, on the bottle and on the literature attached. So they sent money uh, to my father's and his brothers, whose parents had died, I think maybe of drink at a very young age. And our house was a lovely house. But by the time I came to be aware of reality, something I'm not great at, the money had run out. So there were fields, but the fields weren't tilled. There was farm machinery, but was lying there. And I still think of the outdoors. Where I'm staying here, thanks to you, in the hotel in, in, in Channings here, they have outside my window this morning, and the sun was shining and um, up a bit early thinking of this, there's a copper beech tree. And it was absolutely lustrous. And the way it hung, every single branch was alight. And we had one. Uh, we had many trees. Uh, and it brought back again everything I see or hear or feel or any affront or whatever always relates to something from home. And I loved the outdoors because it seemed to me, it seemed to me that uh, the rows and the worries and money worries and every other kind of worry were all indoors. It was beautiful as you describe it, but it was, there was also a harshness about that house. It was a haunted house in some ways. Well, uh, yes, I think the childhood house for every single person here and yourself is both a real house, an archetypal house, and in some way a metaphysical house. You know, it's a house in the mind as much as, and houses are, houses are where stories happen. And of course, every room has a different story. For instance, we had a dining room, and there were big overmantel, gold or gilt overmantels, and such beautiful, you know, my mother loved artificial flowers. I don't know why. <laughs> of course, we didn't have a garden, so there weren't real flowers. And they were like golden spears, these artificial flowers in a bowl, amphora. And would you believe it, I never saw, not only I never saw, no one ever sat or ate anything in that what was called the dining room. <laughs> but it was a room, I used to give names being of a religious um, disposition. That room I called heaven. Other rooms were purgatory. <laughs> And don't forget the seven circles of hell. <laughs> was there music in the house? Was there music in your childhood generally? Not much. The, the, the first time I think I became conscious of music was hearing um, uh, monks. Uh, and I think I might have told you this once, and sorry to repeat myself, but it was truly the first time with music, and it was in a, a Ross Gray, a college run by Cistercian order and their monks and hearing the mass in Latin, Gloria and Excelsis Dei, and the music of it, I think my response to it was as much as if it was theater rather than religion, even though it was at mass. We didn't have music except for one great thing, which still happens in Ireland, probably happens in Scotland. Whenever uh, people came, uh, no matter what, so my father would sing, because he loved to be heard singing. He had a voice? He thought he had, and I think he had. Not the same. <laughs> but it's, there's something about singing at a gathering or at a group. And James Joyce, in, in his master story, The Dead, uh, it's more evidence there than really anywhere piece of fiction I've ever read, the lifting of the hearts of people 
and of everything when it changes from speech mm. to song. So I was very conscious of, of the singing, but I would, would not be able to tell you when I first heard Bach or Mozart. It was way, way on. So I'm not very musically informed. When you reflect back on that time, Edna, as you do in your writing and always have done um, in one way or another, uh, do you see a very different country, a very different Ireland from the one that exists today? Well, there's a lot of... Uh, it's, that is true, but it's also only half true. You don't change uh, a race or a tribe in, in, a, in a generation or two, and you don't change it by imposition. Where, what still pertains and what is in the, for want of another word, the soul of the place, is a kind of, is a temperament for all the garrulousness. There is a kind of loneliness in the country of Ireland. It's understandably. And that loneliness is partly, you know, weather and hardship and work, because not everyone was a millionaire. Many were, as we know, and more billionaire. So you have that ancientness, which I call, a sort of that spirit, and imposed on that then is the modern world. Tourists, tourism, uh, television, music, and all the modern, uh, you know, what people, Twitter and a lot of that uh, codology. <laughs> so in terms of story, for me, and I'm sure other right Irish writers would say the same, if asked, it is still a very fertile ground because people are not afraid or less afraid perhaps to reveal themselves to one. There's also the matter of language that I know Ireland culturally uh, in many ways has, or has in that great boom lost its way a bit because the emphasis was so much on, on money and on wealth and on helicopters and on this and that. And not as many people as I would wish would be reading even the Lake Isle of Inish Free. But in, uh, in, within all that, I think that Ireland has, has this it has this secret. There are secrets. There's probably secrets for everyone in wherever it is they first came from. And I couldn't write, or I couldn't write the kind of things I write without the legacy that my country has given me. And that legacy is not without its price. And apart, above and beyond, you know, you mentioned the banning, but to tell you the truth, banning was two a penny in those days. Everyone was banned. The only one who wasn't banned was James Joyce, because the book never got in. Ulysses never got in, but Alberto, I remember hearing Alberto Moravia, the conformist, and poor Samuel Beckett, poor Samuel Beckett, great Samuel Beckett, was, um, he'd come back to Ireland to be a witness in some libel case, to a witness for a friend of his, and heading in the paper, I forget the year, but I'm very aware of it, was the blasphemer has returned. <laughs> <laughs> so there is that uh, judge, you know, Irish people are judgmental of and towards each other. But that's something that had already been part of your experience from your mother. I'm right in saying that your mother disapproved of you being a writer. She you. did. She did. She, it, it wounded her terribly. Why? Well, as if I've said once, not to her, you'll be relieved to hear, it's as if in another incarnation she had read Molly Bloom's soliloquy and somehow felt that, not without some cause, that writing was sinful and that it led to, it led to wickedness. It led particularly in the erot erotic zones, you know what I mean? I'm trying here to, not to say. So she was very, and there was no tradition of reading. I mean, we did get a monthly 
magazine, when we could afford it, called The Messenger. And the Messenger had a little red cover. And a friend of mine told me lately, his mother, unlike mine, would daub the, she'd moisten her fingers and daub it on the red cover to create a little rouge. <laughs> well, that didn't happen in our house. And the stories in The Messenger were, for want of another word, they were always a, a short story, I mean a serial, to be continued. They were wholesome. They weren't literary. Where my, so that was my mother's education. And people, we are the result of our education, both in the home, in the school, and in the society. We are. So the, the, the contradiction is that my mother was, was rigid and disapproving. She took Jean O'Casey's um, volume of his autobiography out of my suitcase and thought it was dire. Uh, she at the same time, and her letters to me, which I have many boxes of them, are masterpieces. The language, so fluent, stream of consciousness. She wouldn't have known what that was, but she had it. And she would describe things of going up way, way beyond our fields to get uh, to, the, to the briars, to get blackberries, for, to make jam, and curiously enough, wine, which was really not great in our household because it was not allowed. My father being one of the unfortunate people for whom drink is, doesn't suit or didn't suit. And she would describe it, not describing nature as such, but some details like, not, she hadn't brought enough basket, basket for all the blackberries. And having to, to use her skirt, you know, to make a little mm. apron and the stain of the blackberries. So she had, if you like, a writer's sensibility about following through an image or a situation. And yet, when, as I, I, I uh, was shocked, I sent her the country girls and I dedicated it to her. And there was all the brouhaha and the little bit of burning and neighbors and anonymous letters you know, drowning in your own sewerage and so on, open postcards. After she died, I found the book in a bolster case um, where nobody would find it, really. <laughs> and my poor mother had got some black ink and had Baba in the country girl says, let's make a bar of chocolate or Jesus or whatever. My mother had inked out every offending word in black ink. And she had gone through the whole book. And I was, oh, I was so angry. If she had been alive, there would have been an eruption. But when I think on it as well, and she was very, very fond of me, maybe over fond of me, in that she wanted me solely to be hers. When I think of her reality, sitting down at the kitchen table with the book, and the ink, and the ink, and the ink. It's quite a feat to achieve it. Mm -hmm. And it's also very sad. Yes. Because uh, who do we write for? Well, in my case, certainly not my mother. My father, funnily enough, was more lenient. Mm. Uh, but I think the first idea of writing, and I have a sense that you would feel the same, you want to, it seems terribly childish, but you want to win the love and admiration. You don't write, uh, I mean, I rule your hero, or one of your heroes, Dean Swift, out of this moment of conversation. But when you write that first little poem on the first few little lines about the copper beech tree, it's for someone. It's not for nothing. It's for someone whom you want to make that little song for. And I think I wanted very much my mother and my people at home not to be so cross with me. But a moment of comedy arose from it. The Country Girls was the first book of the trilogy, so there was all this uh, repugnance about it. And then came the second book, The Lonely Girl, later called Girl with Green Eyes for the film. And the, the um, considered 
universal opinion was that The Country Girls was a prayer book compared with the second. <laughs> so, you know, you have to keep, you have to keep making them, um, not, not making them. You seem People, you can't write, as you know, yes. to write the same book over and over again. It's no good. You have to, you have to make the next leap and the next leap. You, you, you've always been quite forgiving of your mother's small oppressions, shall we say, but not so much of the church's oppressions. Would you no, talk about that? No, because the church, the mantle of the church, the power of the church, the jurisdiction, the authority was so overwhelming and not about Christianity. It was very secular. It was about power. And as we know from what has sadly and pitifully emerged, I was in a convent and that was very, very stern. But all these uh, situations and reports that have come in Ireland, and I praise the governments that allowed them to be made, what was done to people in the name of God was, was wrong in every way. It was a murder, psychic, social, and heart murder. And that was because the church, the bishops and priests, they were omnipotent. They were omnipotent. And there was a particular um, Archbishop of Dublin, he was called Cardinal John McQuaid. He would put the fear of God into people. And what I didn't know when my, when my book came out was that uh, uh, due to the banning, Charles Hawhey, who later <laughs> pretended to admire me, but there we are, <laughs> life, is, life is full of contradiction. He and Archbishop McQuaid had this long, uh, irate conversation, uh, letters, uh, with the Bishop of Westminster as well, saying this book should not be in any household. The same old words as for James, seeing a smear on Irish womanhood. And had I known, or indeed had my mother known that this was happening, I'd have been in worse trouble. Mm. So the letters, and therefore, the, the fear that, the, to answer your question, uh, we need God. Uh, Nietzsche said, if God did not exist, man would have invented him. But uh, the conveying of God was just so fueled and filled with fear, with rules, and it would be very hard to feel at ease in life about any of one's miscreants or misdemeanors, because that was judging one always, always. I mean, there was and probably always will be the very nice nun or priest or monk who was a truly spiritual person. But spirituality was not the keynote. It wasn't. Fear was. Sorry. 1960 was when that book came out and you were in London already. Had you always intended to leave Ireland? You know, I'm such a, what's the word? I was married at that point and the man I was married to, uh, it was his decision that we would come to London. And it's a very, very strange thing, Andrew. I, I think I wanted to, except I lacked, to, it wasn't that I lacked decision. I was a very, very frightened person, which hasn't completely gone away, let me assure you. So I was, what he, I was at his bidding. And when we first landed off the train in Waterloo Station, my little sons, my little goslings, as I used to call them, and I, I thought, oh my God, this is so lonely. It's so sooty, it's so black, it's so, I thought it was very crowded, probably wasn't that crowded on November the 9th, 1958. But even the pigeons seemed to me to be, to be mechanical. Their the cooing wasn't the same, their sounds weren't the same. And I was given the commission of 50 quid to write a book, because I used to do publishers, I used to read publishers' manuscripts. Write reports. And I want reports, yes. And a wonderful, and I'd like 
because I'm in his country. I'd like to say he was an absolute angel to me. Ian Hamilton was his name. There were two Ian Hamiltons, mm. and you knew the other Ian, who I also liked. But the first Ian Hamilton saw that I could write, or felt that I could write, because of these really long and exigent reports that I did. I got a bit beyond myself, probably. <laughs> and I got paid a guinea for these, and that guinea was very welcome. He and, and an American publisher, Knopf, uh, combined to get me to write a, a novel. And they paid me 50 pounds, which I, being of an extravagant tendency, like yourself, <laughs> I spent the 50 pounds immediately on foolish things. One sensible thing that I thought would, would be, you know, show I was a good wife to the man I was married to. My God, the foolishness we are. Um, it was a, a sewing machine. I've never used a sewing machine. I've never sewed. <laughs> so the money was gone, and now was the, I had to write the book. And oh, it was both the, mo it was both the most, I cried all the time. It was on the windowsill after my, I brought the children to school. And I just sat down with the pen. I always still write by hand, always will. And I had these little notebook, copy books from Ireland that are called Ashling. It means a dream. And they're little ruled copy books that children have in school. I filled copy book after copy book, both crying. And what it was that the severance from Ireland, from everything that I both loved and hated about it, everything was as if it was like a channel inside me. And all I had to do was, was, was my hand was the messenger. And I, I remember the very first lines, I wakened quickly and sat up in bed abruptly. It is only when I am anxious that I waken easily. And for a minute I could not remember, then I did. The old reason, my father, he had not come home. So the sort of elegiac or loss was the tone of the book, but mercifully from I don't know, maybe from various girls I knew and from my own secret rebelliousness, I was able to conceive of a character called Baba. And Baba counteracts the poetic, lyrical, and she's very funny, because one note is not enough. Mm. So I was blessed uh, by being able, through Ireland and through memory and almost, if there is a thing, very hard to maybe find a word, but it's almost like pre-memory, that all these sensations of weather and snow and hailstone and thistles and gates and rutted fields and horses and people, they, they walk into your mind, which doesn't make for normal living, we just mentioned. Yes. <laughs> Do you feel that exile, then, is uh, almost a positive engine for some writers, as it was for Joyce and Beckett to stick with Ireland alone, and very, for you, arguably. Very, I think it is very much, because it has, what exile has, it's like, in, a, in another way, very religious um, mystics have, is the wish for Christ, or for the original paradise. And what exile stirs up in one, is a keener and more urgent uh, memory and pre-memory and everything of what is inevitably lost. Now, it cannot be too sentimental because that ruins it. But neither can, or I'm speaking now of an ideal work of art or fiction or poem, neither must it be, can it be bitter. Bitterness is for an editorial. And it's not that one isn't filled with a righteous anger about many things. You have to be if you're alive and awake and see what's happening in a world. But the, the, the few, the exile, it, it, it whets you. And I, I know it not only have been true for me 
50 whatever number of years, the conference since 1960, um, it's true for each book or each story or each bit of drama because it was already planted in me, both by my own disposition and my own circumstances. It's such an accident, as I'm sure is true for you. If you look at your brothers and sisters and that, it's such an accident that these different, both, well, these different and co contradictory things all accrue to make you want to sit down for some insane reason and write. Because writing is not a normal occupation. No. Who would want to spend four hours trying to capture what, you know, a room or a sky or a sheaf of oats looked like? You wouldn't. And yet the f fever to do that, because in it you feel you can tell something more than just describing the sheaf of oats. And that something more is a yearning in the writer. I mean, Joyce, there's a wonderful moment in which somebody said to James Joyce, you know, you have no heart. And Joyce said, my God, a man like me has no heart. Because he was so brilliant and, and audacious and intellectual and cultured and learned, and it was all those things. But also, like Shakespeare, it can just, one line can hit home in a way that we long for between human, uh, in, in, for instance, a section, and if I go on too long, you can stop me, a section in uh, Ulysses where Leopold Bloom has gone in to have uh, a bit of dinner in the Ormond Hotel in Dublin. And it's the most beautiful section, all musical. Miss Ken and Miss Gold and the cash registers. Blazes Boylan has come in and uh, St Stephen Joyce, Stephen's father, uh, is singing the odd note and exile. In fact, it's very much about exile, but it's also about Dublin. And uh, Leopold Bloom is penning a little foolish letter to an amorata called Martha Clifford, an idiotic letter on pink paper. Blazes Boylan comes in and he's, he's going to meet with Leopold Bloom's wife Molly and more than meet, uh, go to bed with her. And Leo Bloom, uh, Joyce has Bloom address his dead son and what he says in the midst of all this extraordinary onomatopoeic language, what he says is love, hate. These are words, Rudy. Soon I am old. Now that pierces you too. I've gone off message, I think. I'm oh, sorry. Also, what is also in that, that famous scene is, is the line that, uh, what is the word known to all men? Love. And that has, as well as exile, been a theme everywhere in your work from the beginning. Have you been lucky in that way with love? I'm going to create a major disappointment among my <laughs> faithful people here. Never. <laughs> I wouldn't think I have been that lucky in love. I eloped on the first occasion, a couple of other occasions. Not to say I haven't been in love and I have known love. But I am that very um, outmoded and out of fashion person, I think a romantic. And a romantic sees love. Uh, if you think, and I'm, I'm not dodging the question, Yeats has a wonderful line. He says, does the imagination dwell more on the woman lost or the woman gained? And he was for a great long, 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 long time in love with Maud Gone, who spurned him, who said, I hate poetry. She hated poetry, she wanted politics. But she was an extraordinary, ethereal, haunting beauty. Now, his poems, that he, it, 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 they're both ecstatic and sorrowful, these love poems to her, you know, heaven's embroidered cloth and that. Uh, he later, I think, married fairly sensibly to a woman who, uh, in a way, was the replacement of Formod Gone. So, 
I haven't become as, I didn't become sensible, but then I'm a woman. And, and there are more handicaps, even in 2011, August the 16th or 17th, in the writing world and actually in the living world, and I'm not uh, saying anything that opposes what feminism is. I approve of a great much of it. But what you can't change, no doctrine, whether it's communism, Catholicism, feminism, can change the sometimes wayward and definitely yearning human heart. So I have not known. I sometimes see a man and a woman, no longer young, go up a street. Sometimes they're linked, I have their hands out. And I thought, my God, I ain't ever going to have that. And part of it is probably some people would say my own fault. But I don't quite see it as a fault. I see it as a disposition. And love, um, love is everything. Love is the sap that, that feeds and the world. Even the surrealist Andre Breton, I remember copying out once how I came on it, God knows, because most of my early reading was of the religious. Andre Breton said, uh, he was very brilliant, but he said this, he said, love is your last chance. There's nothing else to keep you here. Except and that perhaps, is true for any age. Except yeah. perhaps work, and that would be my question to you. Do you think that, in a sense, you made a choice for work? I probably did. I'm a little uh, hesitant to admit it. But I probably did not in the obvious, ambitious way. You know, oh, I want to get on. I want this and that. Writing is very, for me, and I, I would think it is knowing you are writing, as I do, and loving it, as I do. It's a very private and tentative occupation. And there's only so much of you in this brain and this being. And as I have often said, it was easier to have children and rear them when I was young than actually espouse. My children, when I got that 50 quid and I got them little ammunition and that, they would say, right, are you going, Sasha had a lisp, but he would say, are you writing your novel? And my husband had built a, sh not built anyhow, there was a shed at the end of the garden where I went to write this book. And my sons would tap on the window and would put little letters under the door of blackmail, which said, we are missing you. <laughs> um, oh, we have, we have pneumonia, you know, Cock and a bull story. <laughs> now, you can say to a child, look, I'm trying to do this. You can't say that to a grown man or woman. But I'm only telling, in a sense, the lighter and more superficial aspect of it. I think the, the contract, it's an awful word to use, but I can't find a nicer one at this moment, between self and the thing you are, with great effort and with a fear of failure, trying to do, can only be done by devoting all your time to it. That doesn't make for Sunday roasts, if you know <laughs> what I mean. It doesn't. So yes, I have. It didn't stop me falling in love, and um, sometimes uh, requited, and sometimes unrequited. But probably my, I think if I couldn't write, and I think writers in Russia were sent to gulags, poor Mandelstam, they had to, mem he had to memorize his poem, or his wife had to memorize the poem, because they couldn't write it out. I think to have had that fate and would have been, uh, if I were prevented from writing, it would be like that I might go mad. Even though the writing itself sometimes makes me feel that I'm a couple of steps away from sanity. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's complicated. It's, it's far more complicated than I could verbalize. Well, the joy of that, of course, is that you're now writing, after much hesitation, your memoir. And we've got that to look forward to. But in the this meantime- This is a problem. This is a problem. <laughs> 
So you keep telling me. I want a ghostwriter. Don't tell Faber and Faber <laughs> who sent us here. I want a ghost. Oh, I. It is so hard, Andrew. It is so. First of all, you have to retrace. And I wouldn't say I have that happier life, really. Uh, so you have to retrace it. So you're trying to do that and, and, and get every second of it, you know, like the ticking of a little watch mm. in your ear. You have to or try to make it readable, if not to say luminous. And at the same time, not shirk the uglinesses the cruelties and the heartbreaks. So there's that whole bundle of, and I have been two years now. I began it, the, well, the, the first day I went to Faber at your real invitation <laughs> and, and uh, cajoling of them. It was James Joyce's birthday, the 2nd of February. And uh, I began it, well, I had begun it a little bit before. And what, what it is is, like, I brought a few pages, not to read, so don't get worried. I brought a few pages that I might work on at my hotel. It's like having an animal in the bag. I'm afraid to unzip the bag. I remember how continually preoccupied you were. I came to see you on Christmas Day. Do you remember you were in hospital? Yes. And I come in. A hip, a hip hip hooray, yes. And I come in to see you in, uh, we got the whole Christmas business passed in about 10 seconds, and then we started to talk about your memoir, do you remember? I do. And you were thinking about it on Christmas Day while all this tinsel and snow was going on. Um, you're thoroughly devoted to the notion of getting it right, aren't you? I think you can not think about it, whatever you're writing. That's the problem with, it's one of the reasons why writers like great ones, like Joyce and Faulkner, have to drink. You have to drink, not when you're writing. Well, there has to be some way of easing that, that um, consciousness of it, and this word, and that word, and that sequence of words, and it, it doesn't ever stop. One of the things you did uh, whilst also contemplating the memoir, which is ongoing, of course, is to write these beautiful short stories, and as they appeared, some of them in the New Yorker and elsewhere, I did feel, and I said to you at the time, that these represented some of the best work um, of your life. And I feel that there's a maturity and a precision and a, a commitment uh, to, to fiction expressed here, um, which is so rare. And I just wondered maybe if you could read a couple of pages from one of them. Yes. And then we'll have some questions from the audience. So get, oh, yes. get so thinking. How's the time going? We're OK for time. Give us a few pages. Um, Shovel Kings, which, of course, is an ironic title, uh, Ireland. Some of the great entrepreneurs had begun a shovel, uh, at the shovel. This, however, is not an entrepreneur. It's a, a man who worked on the buildings and uh, the, building the cables for England. A young boy who came with his father was um, in a room somewhere in North London, a gas ring. And there was one book in that room that someone had left, Zane Gray. And the story is written by a, a narrator who I suppose in one mad part of myself could be said to be me, but one is many people, as Stephen Wolfe has told us. And she meets this man, and at first he's very cold with her and aloof, and gradually they, they become friendly. And then one day she comes into the pub, because she in fact is going to a psychiatrist at the same time each week. She comes in, and Adrian, the young man behind the bar, says, you're wanted somewhere. And the hero of the story is called Rafferty, and Rafferty is the man who wants her. So she's with Rafferty in this place in London. We were out of doors, sitting as it happened on a bench, in a graveyard that was anything but morose. A wide bordered path ran from a gateway to another at the opposite entrance, allowing a shortcut for pedestrians and cyclists, so that it was as much a haunt of the living as of the dead. The graves neatly tended, the grass bank newly mowed, and there was the added gaiety of springtime in London, borders, borders of simmering yellow tulips, front gardens and back gardens, surpassing each other in bounteous displays, 
wisteria, a feast in itself, masses of it falling in fat folds. That blue so intense, it lent a blueness into the eyes themselves. Adrian had said that Rafferty would love a few moments with me. Rafferty could not contain his joy at his super duper news. He was going home to Ireland for good. No more bills, no more hassle. Then he took the letter from his wallet. It was worn and crinkled, but hesitated before handing it to me. He had to explain the circumstances. A benefactor who had begun life digging, but who had bettered himself and accrued great riches, had contacted the center where he got a lunch every day, asking for someone of good character to come home. And Roching, the stalwart that she was, suggested him. And after a ream of letters, his credentials, etc., passed on, he was accepted. The house, the dream house he was going to, was a bungalow, which would be shared with an elderly man. But a woman would come in every day to do the things. And since he suffered the elderly man from diabetes, uh, Rafferty felt that he would be dozing most of the day. Forty years earlier, when he, Rafferty, had left Ireland, his mother, his lovely mother, had packed his things in a brown suitcase. And he had taken his belongings out, except for three sacred things, a missal, a crucifix, which he had had blessed, and a striped pajamas, which he never wore, but had kept in case he would have to go to hospital. <laughs> he said he would humor the elderly relative. He might play cards with him or even do the crosswords. And with a vigor, he contemplated picking up a shovel again and getting a bit of a garden going. Cabbage, sprouts, shallots, lettuce, and see what potatoes were native to that soil. I'll go to the pub, he says, dance to reason, but I'll pace myself. No going back to Skid Row for Rafferty. The bungalow was not in his own part of the country, but still, it was home. It was going home. And he asked aloud if it was likely that he would once again hear the cry of the corn crake, the distinctive call which had never, ever faded from his memory. When I'm sitting on the rocking chair over there on the borders of Leitrim and Roscommon, he said, they'll ask me how it was, how was it in the building works? I'll tell them it was great. It was great altogether. And I'll tell them about Paddy Pancake. Shrove Tuesday, we were all on site, itching to get off early because we'd sworn to give up drink for Lent. Paddy Pancake sprung a surprise on us. Never touched a drink himself, wore his total absolute badge for all to see. He was a night chef somewhere in Ely. From a black oilskin bag, he took out flour, eggs, milk, castor sugar, salt, and a small bottle of a very dangerous looking blue liqueur. It even brought a basin to make the batter. Then looking round, he picked up big shovel, washed it down a couple of times with a hose and presto, he had his frying pan. Two lads were told to get the fire going, plenty of wood from timbers and old doors on site. And Paddy tossed the pancakes on the shovel like a master. He had an assistant to sprinkle on the castor sugar and a few drops of the liqueur and lads gabbled, grabbed and gobbled like wolves. And to crown it all, a shy Galway boy stood up on a skip and belted out a rebel song. Roddy McCorley goes to die on the bridge of tomb today. The words and his voice, so beautiful and so heartfelt. Tears welled up at Drafferty's eyes as he recalled that revel, a winter evening, the glow of the fire, the flames, red, blue, dancing in a London wasteland, as if in some Roman amphitheater. And then I'll skip a little bit just for time. But less than two weeks later, when I called into the pub in North London, I thought I must be hallucinating. Sitting in his usual place with a pint on the table in front of him was a man, the spitting image of Rafferty. Same wide-brimmed black hat, wrinkled jacket, and the pint. I looked away. But then Adrian, the barman, gave me a nod, and I looked again. It was Rafferty. It was him. He was quiet, 
took his time before he acknowledged me, showing none of the warmth that he had on the day in the graveyard. Adrian told me what had happened. The bungalow was new and clean, too new, too clean. The old man sat in his chair looking out at the fields, invariably missed, checking his blood sugar every few hours, having an insulin injection, and taking several sets of tablets. A Miss Maroney came to do the dinner and drove them mad. The landing was a shrine with statues. Miss Maroney spouting homilies on the evils of drink and so on. Even when he went to the pub, Rafferty didn't feel at home. It was noisy, it was brash, it was young people coming and going, no quiet corner to brood in, and no one to have any interest in his stories. As for the garden, he intended to plant the grounds around the house had been landscaped with bushes and flowering shrubs. Nothing wrong, as he told Adrian, but nothing right either. And this is really the point of why you asked me. Exile, Adrian says to the narrator, all in the mind. Doesn't belong in Ireland, doesn't belong in England, ditto. And Rafferty, with a little persuasion, comes over to say hello to the narrator. But he's different with her because he has, in a sense, failed and he has withdrawn now back into relying on his own self. Mind yourself, those were the last words Rafferty said to me. He did not shake hands. And as on that first morning, he raised his calloused right hand in a valediction that bespoke courtesy, but a finality. He had cut me out the way he had cut his mother out and those few who were dear to him. Not from a hardness of heart, but from a heart that was immeasurably broken. Under the pavement were the lines of cable that linked the lights of the great streets, and the lesser streets of London, as far distant as Kent. I thought of all the Shovel Kings, and their names suddenly materialized before me. Their nicknames, as in a litany, Hawley, Murph, Moleskin Mugovan, Turnip O'Mara, Whiskey Tip, Oran Moore Joe, Tea Boy Teddy, Paddy Pancake, Accordion Bill, and Rafferty himself, the Shovel Kings gone to dust. Let's get moving with questions because we're running out of time. Um, could, could we have a mic down here, please? I probably read for too long. We should no, have gone perfect. to the questions sooner. Um, let's just try and squeeze a few the questions. The questions in. are the best bit. <laughs> that was wonderful. Is it working? Yeah. Yes. Thank you very much. I go way back in your life, actually. And way back in your life, you went to see R.D. Lang to get over all the horrors and traumas of leaving Ireland and your childhood. Did it help? I've always longed to know. I couldn't hear the question. Uh, your experience with R.D. Lang, uh, did it help? Uh, oh, yes, I'm in the country of R.D. Lang as well. Mm. I have Scottish <laughs> connections. Um, R.D. Lang was a, very, uh, was a very brilliant man. But I don't think, I don't see him, his own mind was so raveled and so gifted he was more an artist than a psychiatrist. So did it help? I mean, I haven't been to Sigmund Freud, so I can't tell you, or to Gustav Jung. It probably helped, but not in the way I expected. I'm actually going to write about my experience with Lang, which has engraved in, me, in my memoir, so I'm saving it, if you forgive me. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, you have, of course, been in Scotland before, but welcome again. In terms of poetry, you will be familiar, I'm sure, quite sure, with John Keats and his Acre of Grass. Can I just ask where you live now, please, and where you would finally like to retire to your Acre of Grass? 
Yeah, what is the question for Where do you live now and where would you like to retire to find your acre of grass if you were to retire? Oh, well now, if you have an acre of grass, I'm your person. <laughs> <laughs> I live in London. I actually live... I have the thing in my childhood that we always dreaded was the bailiff or eviction. I actually live in a, in a rented place in London, also belonging once to a Scottish family called Cadogans. But this, so where is home, is, is that temporary abode? In terms of the acre of grass, I couldn't really, though I write about it, I couldn't live not that it's mine anyhow. The house I grew up in is, is a ghost house now, a shell. The acre of grass uh, hasn't come my way, and uh, I think I'm quite frightened about that. Uh, I, I had houses, and rather like the Russian woman in the cherry orchard, Madame Rayanevska, I uh, lost those houses in, on account of uh, love and other matters, mainly love, I would say. Uh, you're, you're asking a sensible question that I'm not able to give a sensible answer to because I, haven't, I have a very beautiful graveyard, that much is true, on an island in the Shannon and uh, where my mother's family are all buried. But I don't have the, the acre of grass and I don't think it's going to come my way. It's, if that sounds a little depressing, I have to tell you it's not intended to be, it's just the truth. Okay, I've got somebody up the back here. We're going to steal a few more minutes over time. Does the animal in the bag have a name? Does the animal in the bag have a name? The memoir? Does, what Does it have a title? Or well, or it is. The, the, the title was, was supplied by Sasha, my son, who knows a thing or two. Uh, it's, 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 it's really like plagiarism, but what we're all plagiarists as writers, it's called Country Girl. <laughs> <laughs> and and when, when I told my demo thieves, because they'll, they'll think of the Country Girls and Country Girl, and the title is about the best thing about it so far. <laughs> okay, we're down to our last couple of questions. If we take that lady at the back, yeah. Dear Andrew, hello, Edna. Um, like you, I was brought up in Ireland, and I understand the the product that you, that your mother was become. Do you think, by your mother inking out all those words, is the only way she could read your book? And have you forgiven her? Have I forgiven my mother? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Ah, yes, because. Um, she gave me so much. It's easier, of course, I have to be a, be a bit of honesty has to come into this. Probably easier to forgive the dead than the living. Because <laughs> you, don't, you don't have that confrontation. But I think of my mother as a remarkable person. And she gave me, she gave me many things. Uh, she gave me fear, that's for sure. But she gave me something that has stood by me better than, even though I don't have the green acre, has stood by me better than anything in this world, which is stamina and perseverance. She worked all her life. And having that ingrained in one is a, is a huge thing. I also feel, I'll tell you what I would love. If my mother was alive and I'd say to her, do you know what, I'd love to read you a couple of pages of something I have written, and to read it to her. Because with changing times and changing everything, she would be more receptive to it. And also about forgiveness, I think holding grudges and that, or there are some people that have harmed me very much in my life, but my mother was not one of them. She made me, she, she, she uh, instilled fear in me, which was because of her own fears. But that's not a bad thing either, to be a bit afraid and to have a, a sort of awakened conscience is no drawback. But it doesn't make one at home in one's skin in life. 
Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure like me, you'd be happy to sit here for the rest of the summer. Uh, Edna's never uh, been less than a class act. She's one of the best, as you know. Uh, please join me in thanking her for speaking so well today. More podcasts, videos, and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.